Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to today's episode of Climate Consulting. This week I had the pleasure of finally sitting down with someone who I've known for a long time now, Simon Clark, founder of CVL, founder of Metis, and advisor to a range of boutique consultancies. I was first introduced to Simon almost five years ago when Create Engage was just getting off the ground. Simon kindly offered me his time and advice on how to get an agency business going, and we have stayed in touch ever since. While we've known each other a long time, we have never actually had the opportunity to meet in person, or I should say had, because the podcast was our chance to do that. And having talked about it quite a few times, we finally managed to set a date to record at our office in Bath, and I'm really pleased we did. Simon's story, as you will hear, is rather atypical, but goes to show you what you can do if you grab the opportunities presented to you. His consulting career started when, at the tender age of 25, with his first major client already secured, he launched CVL, a firm that he went on to sell 14 years later. 
Coming off the back of that, him and his wife went traveling, something that we also go into detail on in today's show. And after an 18-month adventure that saw them living alongside locals in Lima and even doing an internship at a media startup, Simon returned to the UK to launch Metis, a new tech startup in the professional services automation space. Having built a great platform and learned a ton about the boutique end of the consulting space, Simon and his co-founder called Time on Metis, and Simon went on to the next stage of his career, advising boutiques big and small as they navigated the challenges of growing a consulting firm. With a journey like this, and everything that I haven't included in here, there was so much for us to speak about, and we cover some great topics in this conversation. We talk about why sales training is actually the best possible grounding for anyone who aspires to run their own consultancy. And Simon talks all about his experience of going into a sales role straight out of university and what it taught him. We discuss the business model that CVL was grown on and how they used the associate model so successfully, a model that Simon and the team stuck with even as they scaled. And why Simon recommends taking time out to travel early in life to gain experiences that will benefit you throughout your life and your career. There's all of this, plus plenty of fishing, football, and rugby metaphors, as I'm sure you've come to expect from one of my episodes of Climbing Consulting. So whether you are just starting out in your consulting career, maybe you are thinking about making a move to another firm or starting your own, Simon's advice is going to be really helpful for you. And I know you're going to get a ton from what he shares in this conversation. So with the intro over, please sit back, relax, and enjoy today's conversation with Simon Clark. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, having just had a very nice lunch together, I'm looking forward to round one for our listeners, round two for us, where we're going to dive into everything that we didn't touch on at lunch. Well, I know it's always hard when you know what you're going to talk about, but I'm very excited for this. So thank you for coming all the way to Bath for this. In terms of how we start, I always like to ask my guests, and you and I know each other well, but our listeners may not be as familiar. So could you, for their benefit, share a little bit on who you are and how you got to where you are today? So I did a very general honours degree, French, economics, politics, year abroad, ran up a fair amount of, at the time, felt like a lot of student debt isn't compared to today. And that was mainly through drinking and playing rugby. I went to the careers library. There was a magazine called Prospectus. I picked the highest paid job available in there um, rather than anything I was particularly interested in. That was selling advertising to universities. We then put them on CD-ROMs, which got me interested in technology. Along came the internet and we started doing the same thing. That really piqued my interest. So I went to work for a web agency for a while and then ended up founding a consultancy, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit more later. We then sold that business and I went and did a bit of traveling for a year and a half and then did a SaaS business, which was a professional services automation company where we uh, ran a software development team and and built and sold a product for that. And then after that, I've spent the last five or six years being a non-executive director, advising consultancies and agencies on how to grow and and some of them have sold. And that brings us to today. Wow. Well, I think a very succinct overview of what was quite a career, what is quite a career, Simon. And actually, yeah, doing that in in that minute was very good and lots of jumping off points. And I know know about some of those. Obviously, I seem to remember it was Jonathan from your Metis days who first introduced us. And I know we're going to come on to that, all of that. Why don't we start, as you sort of highlighted, this being a consulting show and you founding a consultancy, it probably won't be a surprise for you to learn is partly why we're here today. 
could you share that founding story of CVL? And, and I know we got up ahead of this and I, I made some notes and one of them was, you said it as a throwaway, but I wanted to ask about it. James Dyson wrote your first purchase order, dot, dot, dot. I'm going to just throw that open and let you go from there. Sure. So I, I was leading a web development agency, one of the first in London to do e-commerce at the time to sell things on this new thing called the internet. And we've been doing projects for Dyson, the company, about mainly their intranet, actually, and, and their sort of marketing website. I decided to leave the company. I didn't get on particularly well with the new uh, CEO that we'd hired. And so uh, I left on, on good terms with the chairman who'd founded that business. I'm still friends today. And I rang the MD of Dyson at the time and said, I'm not going to be able to carry on working on your stuff. I'm going on to do different things. A few moments later, my phone uh, rang back and it was his PA and said, Martin wants to speak to you. So put me through and said, well, why don't you come and see us and, and we might do this with you as a direct project. And I was kind of like, well, I'm going to go have a little holiday because I've been working fairly hard for a few years. So I had my first break for a while, came back and drove over to Malmesbury to see them. And basically, uh, you've probably all heard the story, but James didn't like retailers very much because they'd made his life fairly difficult when he was first selling vacuum cleaners. And something like 70 or 80% of the people who left a shop with a Dyson had gone in for a Dyson at the time. And that was John Lewis, Argos Comic Curries. And so he didn't feel they were adding enough value in product selection or merchandising or anything, and therefore he wanted to sell direct. At the time, we were using dial-up modems at 14.4 and 33.6 board speed, which would just not mean an awful lot today, but very slow. Credit card transactions were very nascent. It was really hard to sell high-value items on the internet. James was, you know, enough negative energy towards retailers to want to do it anyway. And his MD was reasonably scared that the multi-million pound business was about to become a multi-thousand pound business overnight if he stopped selling through retailers. Anyway, there was a consultancy project there can I sell on the internet and, and not have to use retailers? And um, I went to see them. I didn't have a company or anything. They wrote me a purchase order and said, who do I make it payable to at the top? So I left the uh, meeting room, went out into the main office, rang ABC Companies Limited and asked them to fax me a list of off-the-shelf company names. There was one called Create or Visions Limited, which sounded a bit like a strategy consultancy. And so I paid over the phone to, to buy an off-the-shelf company, got the purchase order made out to them. And then driving back down the M4, M4 thought, that's not a great name for a consultancy at all. I'll just use the initials. And that's how CVL was born. And I went and did a six or eight week project basically for James Dyson on whether or not he could sell direct over the internet. And, and from there onwards, we, we built the consultancy. That is a fantastic founding story, Simon. And I love, I don't know if people do that anymore, right? checks to people they trust to go and get stuff done. Now it's got all go through procurement and RFPs. And, and I'm sure it's the same at Dyson now. It was a, it was uh, a smaller company at the time. Oh, still significant, but a smaller company at the time. I love that. You know, sometimes you ask people what led you, you know, how did you decide to launch one or what, you know, how much sort of toing and froing? And it sounds like you went in with, you know, what am I going to do? You came out with a purchase order, created that firm. And also it answers the question I had around where CVL came from as well. So, that is obviously a fantastic way to kick off. But for many people, that would be a consulting or a contracting gig. They do it for you. You mentioned eight weeks and then, okay, I'll go on. How did that, I guess, snowball into the firm that it became? Kind of what was that? You know, that was you on your own, presumably. Yeah. How did that go from one to five? What was that catalyst that kind of scaled into the firm it became? 
So we were lucky enough that I had another couple of clients who wanted to work with me. I obviously had some contractual obligations to, to be careful on there. And what they did is go to my former employer and say, look, we don't want to, the web build stuff, the design and build of websites, which is primarily what we were doing back then. And the old firm is, is not the thing we want to buy from Simon. It's advisory. So they wanted to hire me to do advisory. So they, they basically said, if you'll waive his non-compete clauses, we'll carry on giving you the design and build, but we'll use Simon for, for advisory. And then it became a capacity issue. So we needed some, I needed some more tech skills than I had. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a techie. I'm a, a closet pretend amateur one, but not somebody you'd trust to do proper grown-up techie stuff. So the CTO of that business came and, and joined me. Two or three others did. And we basically were demand-led into how we built the firm. So there wasn't a plan. There wasn't a strategy. I'm not a trained consultant. I've never been on a course, I'm afraid, for anything that's consulting-based. And we built it organically from, from that client demand. Yes. I, to your point of being a trained consultant, I didn't ask because I don't usually open up the, the intros because I don't want to knock people off their train of thought. But to your point of being advertising to universities was the best paid job and you're obviously quite good at it. So I was intrigued. Was it the best paid job or was it because Prospectus was a magazine? They they said it was the best paid job to get people people like yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who, who knows? Who knows? But um, and it's interesting because, I mean, we'll no doubt talk about it later in terms of consulting skills. I spent nine months making relatively coldish calls to academics who didn't really want to have anything to do with marketing their courses. They wanted to be the academic, the professor of something or whatever. But that sales grounding has done the best training I've ever done in the sort of 20 or 30 years I've been doing this, because it just is the best foundation you can have to, to sell something that doesn't exist, like some immaterial thing like advertising. So yeah, so it was a good I would still encourage anybody now to go do something like that, regardless of what they want to do later in life. No, I think I think great advice. Like you say, we'll we'll talk about more advice more broadly later on. But I think that whole conversation around sales skills and and equally the in consulting, you, you typically learn by doing the project management, and then sales is thrust upon you. Actually, yeah, getting that early, you know, you're almost trained out of school doing it. I imagine that you can tell us about sort of the impacts that had. But I guess. Something that I wanted to touch on, and you can tell me how this fits into that that growth journey, because I always like to, on the show, pick up on things that are slightly different, you know, slightly kind of, I guess, unorthodox in terms of growth, and something you highlighted that actually one of the big focuses you had as you built out CBL and the team is you really focused on an associate-led model. So everyone listening will know what an associate is. It's quite common for consultants to use associates, but I also think it's quite uncommon for that to be a heavy focus beyond a certain point. So, you know, as I'm sure you'll, you'll know and probably did, many firms of 10 have five associates. But I know you focused, I think it was, you know, one to three ratio of one employee to three associates. And I, I guess I'd love to know the journey you went on, sort of how did you select that model? How did you make it work? And, and then, you know, how did you manage, I guess, that to supply and demand? So there's a lot in there. I'll let you take us on the journey and we can, we can unpack it as we go. Yeah, there, there, is, there is a lot in there. So I think you're absolutely right. It was a stated strategy for us we sort of retrofitted it to, to the point I'm going to make in a moment. And then we made it a minimum of three to one or four to one. I think we even got to five or six to one at some stage where for every permi day that was billed, there'd be four, five or six associate days. And we would measure that as a KPI as the business matured. In the first few years, we were 25, 26 years old. We had no formal consulting training. If we'd gone out to the market and said to an experienced consultant, would you like to come and join our firm? They would have wanted to be our boss because frankly, they had more experience, more knowledge and, and absolutely, you know, would have absolutely deserved that role. So what we did was hire experienced people as associates because we needed their skills and their breadth. 
The thing about e-commerce or multi-channel retail, as it became known, is that you needed a breadth of skill that was nearly impossible to have in a small firm of permies at the size, the scale we were. You needed commercial skills, you needed retailing skills, technology, you needed warehousing, supply chain, distribution, marketing. I mean, th these are the disciplines required you know, because it touched every part of a business. And that's what our initial proposition was. So we were never going to get people with 10 and 20 years consulting experience across four or five or six of those disciplines to join a couple of younger guys who had a couple of client contracts. So using associates was our natural way of, of doing that to start with. And then it became a strategy because we chose not to then have a graduate scheme and to take young people on. We were a minimum of 10 years experience across the vast majority of the firm for the, for the most of its life, which was ironic because I was the one person in the business who didn't have the 10 years experience in consulting. So we chose it because the market we'd gone into required a breadth of skill that wasn't within our grasp at that scale. And then once we'd done that and we'd got the model to work, we decided to do it as a strategy and to keep it with it because it gave us the flexibility and it also meant that we had the agility to change when the market changed. It's remiss of me because in your sort of overview, it makes sense now, but I didn't appreciate you'd started the firm quite so young. And so, I mean, the, the obvious question right back to basis I mean, is how did you even know to structure in that way? Like, yeah. Was it blank sheet of paper and you didn't know better? Did you read a business book? How, how did you decide? <laughs> I can, again, I can retrofit loads of logic and rationale behind it. I, no, I, I was 20. I had to look it up, actually, because I thought it would come up. I was 25 when we started CBL and I was 39 when we sold it. So I must have run it for about 14 years. Even I can work the maths out on that. But, you know, so we made it up as we go along. And I don't mean that flippantly, but we were one page ahead in the book and we were reasonably bright and built relationships and obviously didn't do too bad a job. And people kept asking us to carry on doing it for them. So yeah, we, it was organic. I think the politest way would be, because that's really means we made it up as we went along, doesn't it? But yeah, it was an organic growth of, of the organization. Well, you, you've definitely learned the consulting terms over time, haven't you? I think then, so you, the, the way you explain the need for associates makes perfect sense. You know, part of it was necessity, part of it was that breadth of, of skills. I guess there's an obvious extension as the firm grew. What, what kept, why did you keep that model? Why didn't you, to your point, go to a per model? What was it about staying associate-led that worked from day one through to, you know, year 14? Yeah, I think we realized that we weren't going to be a, the people factory of the pyramid of making money out of the juniors managed by the middle guys and, and the partners, you know, taking the cash if, if we're being cynical about that model. That just wasn't what we wanted to do because we wanted to deploy experienced only people. And to make it profitable, if you're only deploying experienced people, then you have to charge a super amount of money for it in order to compete with the big four, five, six, whatever it was at the time. Our effective way of doing it was by staying on the associate base so that we never paid for bench time. And so, you know, we had some associates before we had employment, uh, disguised employment, IR35 type regs. We had associates who would do 100, 200 days a year uh, for us. But they were never paying for bench time. So it meant that we could price ourselves in a way that kept our net profit at a reasonable level and made our proposition attractive to clients without having to carry a bench. So that was the reason that we stuck with it as a strategy. And when you explain it like that, it makes makes perfect sense. <laughs> who, who wants to pay for bench time when you don't have to? And I mean, there's an obvious, and, and I'm going to try and poke lots of holes in it because you've solved them. And so I think for others, it, it will be really useful is on one hand, to your point, well, okay, we finished a project, you know, John, Jane, whoever it is, we'll see you when we're ready for the next one. That's great for you in terms of not having to have that sort of dead cost. 
the flip side is that that associate is in it for themselves. So if that associate suddenly you've stopped paying them, well, there'll be a new consultancy, a new paymaster, which then means you're constantly having to juggle. You know, you don't have that bench when James turns around to you and gives you another purchase order. How did you manage, I guess, that constant challenge of supply and demand so that, yeah, great, you're not having bench, but then when you need it, where are they? Sure. Uh, I think it's, it's a great question. We invested heavily and invested early in the associate model. So we didn't do it on the cheap. It wasn't why we'd done it. I think even, you know, XD years ago, we were probably spending upwards of £100,000 a year on the associate model. So we had a full-time senior member of staff whose job it was to be our resourcing and recruitment and associate manager. We had events and things. So we had a thing called a core associate. And a core associate was somebody who'd worked with us for a certain number of days or a certain number of projects and got a quality rating at the end of their projects of above four out of five or eight, nine out of 10. I can't remember what the, the metrics were. And is that a model you built? Sorry, just because we you built that. We made that. that we created that and we said, okay, we're going to have a thing called core associates. And I think there was 18 or 20 in that pool at some stage. And those were the people who, in return for being a core associate, they got to come to a monthly breakfast. I think everybody got to come to monthly breakfast. They got training investment from us. They got a social, maybe quarterly. They got, I think, paid quicker than, than everybody else. They got paid on seven days instead of 14 or something. There was all sorts of kind of, mem- you know, perks of being in it's the club. It's almost like a frequent flyer yeah, program, Yeah, it was, it? it was. It was getting your Costa card stamped. Uh, you know, it, it absolutely was. And the reason we did that is, so, you know, many, many years ago, my mum trained as a typist in Leeds, uh, the Leeds Secretarial College or something. And the temp agency that everybody wanted to work for was Kelly's. And the reason they wanted to work for Kelly's is you got a nail file because on a manual typewriter, it used to bugger up your nails when they scratched on the keys. Um, you got paid earlier and there was something else. But so when Kelly's were advertising for secretaries at a few, you know, three, three shillings and six an hour, and so was the other agency, you all wanted to be a Kelly's girl. And if you take that model, we wanted to be the consultancy of choice. So we would benchmark ourselves and say, if you're offered the same day rate in the same location to do the same project, we want you to choose CVL. So we'd put intangibles around it. We would include you in our cultural stuff. We would do the little bit of club where we pay you a bit earlier or something else. We would make it so that we were the Kelly's girls of the freelance consulting space. And that was part of our stated strategy. I love it as a notion because to your point, I think, and I can know speaking of today's where people so much focus on their company culture and employee culture. And I guess what you were doing there is no different. You're saying, oh, how do we stand out? It's a different contractual structure, but how do we stand out to these associates? And to your point on investment, you know, you mentioned you spent sort of hundred thousand pounds, you had a head, you had a person who looked after it. You you've touched on some of those intangibles. What were some of those other things you did to build that, you know, that exclusivity, that club? breakfasts, you had, you know, your colleague reaching out, what what else sort of sat around that model to make sure you you, know, you manage that supply and demand at all times? Yeah. So I, our practice leader directors, uh, we had th- three or four of them at different times. They were all seeing two, three or four prospective associates each a week. And so that's a huge time commitment on their behalf. And most of those, I mean, interviews, cups of coffee, you know, if we, even if we didn't have an open role, then they would see somebody, our supply chain practice director would see two or three people in different skill sets each week, whether it was transport or logistics or warehousing or, or capacity management or whatever. But they would see them generally at eight o'clock in the morning or at five or six o'clock in the evening for half an hour or an hour. And they'd either meet them for a bacon sandwich or a glass of wine or in the office. And therefore they were f- managing the top of that funnel. 
in the same way as you do with clients, we used to treat the supply funnel as the same way as we do with the demand funnel. And so they were doing that. They were keeping them in a little database. And then when they met the criteria, we'd give them a call and then maybe put them through a for more formal process. But there was a lot of time and effort invested in networking and prospecting on the supply side as much as there was on the demand side. And you, you answered one of my questions. So I'm, I'm going to ask it a different way. As you touched on, that was that top of funnel. So new associates in, I guess. How did you keep the current, you know, was it just that club kept the best associates warm and everyone else was kind of just, they were there if you needed them? And if not, how did you keep, I guess, that mid-funnel? You know, they're not your your club, your core, they're not your new. What, how did you nurture that group? Well, they, they were treated, again, you've got to be careful nowadays with the change in regulation and legislation, but they were treated as staff. So, you know, we would look after them in the cultural same ways, whether that was, as I said, training investment was mainly for the club people. But the rest of our associates would be taken out for lunch on their client site dues or they'd be, they were never treated as contractors. And it's a word we never used. We would use freelance, we'd use associate. And with our clients, I mean, they got business cards, they got email addresses. There was, you couldn't tell the difference between somebody who worked for us and somebody who was an associate engaged by us. And that was important to them as much as it was to us and our clients. Our clients knew the model. We never pretended, never lied, absolutely didn't. But they actually would see no difference between somebody who's on our payroll. And that the reason I'm answering that, giving you that as the answer is because that mattered to them. They could have the advantage of feeling like they were part of a firm and a culture and a company without having to be restricted. A, they'd earn more money if they were successful and did enough days in a year. And B, they didn't have to be restricted to, to a career path in a, in a permanent role. You touched on something there. And I, I ask you, because I've seen a number of firms like this out in the market. And I, I'd love to know how you squared it. Because you mentioned you didn't, you shouldn't hide things, but you didn't hide it from clients. You were very transparent on your model. How did you position it? Was it just, it's a CVL team? And the reason I ask is, say, there's there's a yeah. number of firms popping up or being established for a while who have that kind of virtual team model. You know, people know about Eden McCullum, firms like that. How did you square that circle? Was it just, you're getting a CVL team and yeah, they might be employed, they might be associate, but they'll deliver whatever happens. So with clients, we, it's the same. we we'd never disguise it or hide it. I think we just didn't talk about it until it came up. Our assignments were always led by a senior permie. In the vast majority of cases, they were led by a manager or a director that was a permanent member of staff. I think the important thing for a client was whether that was going to be available to them. And the, the biggest risk in the client's mind when they knew we ran an associate model is that we might have Joanne come and do phase one. What if Joanne's not available for phase two? And we would head that off by saying that's the same in a larger company that has permies, because if Joanne's any good, she's going to be yanked by another team and sent somewhere else. They're not going to sit there waiting for, for your phone call. I'm not trying to say, I would never say that it was problem free. We did have clients say, well, they're contractors, why don't I just hire them direct? But it was once or twice over a sort of 10 or 15 year period of, of running a model like that. So, you know, it did happen, but it was very, very rare. Yeah. And I think to, to that point and what you touched on with how you treated the, you know, your associates, albeit like you said, it was a different time from a regulatory perspective. Actually, all of these arguments hold true. You know, why don't I just go and hire that person from your firm? We all know the counter arguments and the reasons people don't. So actually, yeah, that, like you say, those kind of fall away. I hadn't expected to go there. And I, I know you're not involved in the business now, so it's not saying what is going on. But for people who are running firms like this, and I suspect you talk to them, actually... Can you still run a firm associate-led or associate-heavy in today's world with things like R35? And I know you're not a lawyer, don't give legal advice, etc. <laughs> but I'm just interested in your thoughts. I think if you're doing public sector work, it's been out of, the, it doesn't work brilliantly for a while now because they've, they've been you know, caught, caught by that legislation for a little bit. I think it's still possible. I think you 
have to be much more arm's length. Again, no legal advice, no, you know, what have you. I think you have to be much more arm's length and you couldn't get away with doing the things we do where we used to bring them to staff parties and breakfast and because that literally is disguised employment. And, you know, as, as I understand the legislation is written. I do think there's still a merit in a flexible labour model. I just think the margins will be impacted because even if you end up paying the national insurance and grossing it up and doing whatever else that we had the commercial advantages of, I still think the model stacks in, in a lot of circumstances. It's just not going to be as commercially efficient as it was when I was doing it. Yeah, I guess to your point, the, the big benefit is the lack of bench time, isn't it? You, you lose the utilisation risk or problem because you you know you aren't bearing any of that and then it is just like you say how you gross those costs up yeah and um, and and also and i understand the counter arguments i'm not blind to them we would say to clients that you don't get the next best body on the bench you get the next best body available anywhere so you know we we've, we've all run permanent resourcing models where you go well Derek's not perfect for this, but he's been sat on the bench for a little while now. Go on, Derek, you'll be fine. Versus us being able to go out to an associate pool of one or 200 people and pick the best person for the job. Yeah, no, it it makes a lot of sense. Then I think another side of your model, Simon, and and this plays, I guess, to, to the associate piece as well, is I know you were heavy in terms of, I guess, outsourcing support functions. So, you know, you didn't have a head of HR, as I understand it. You didn't have a head of marketing. You obviously did have your associate lead, but... Why did you follow that kind of outsource model? Which again, I think at the time you were running CBO was quite unusual. You know, today it's more common. But yeah, why did you take that route and not building that in that permanent team sort of at head office? Yeah, I should point out in case you listen that we had a freelance marketeer who then went permi, just in case. But uh, yeah, so our philosophy was that we should keep the you know, non-billable headcount or non-commercial, you know, non-client-facing headcount to the minimum that we needed it to be in order to be either something that was core and differentiating to the business or that we were intelligent customers of the outsourced services. So we did, you know, we had a head of marketing who came in and then used our outsourced partners. We had a head of finance and operations, but of, but we relied and got even some of our bookkeeping to be to be outsourced. I think the main reason was, again, that you, you know, you could, from a negative point of view, you could say it was a lack of planning that we didn't know what next year was going to look like. We were a project-based business, like most consultancies nowadays. We didn't know what six months or a year away looked like. We were doing relatively small projects. We weren't doing many multi-year ERP implementations. We were doing three to six month length projects and they could have stopped and, and what have you. So we didn't want necessarily the commitment to to permanent headcount in, in the way that we would have been, you know, given no choice had we decided to insource everything. It also meant that we could change the sort of people and the sort of services we were buying relatively quickly without the heartache of having to let people go. I think that last point actually is a really good one. I The amount of books I've read from Silicon Valley where to varying degrees of politeness they say basically hire someone until they're not fit for the role and then fire them and move on always feels a little Machiavellian for me and a little aggressive and I think to your point actually where it's suppliers though that's their nature of their business you know you get from zero to one zero two to one to two like I say probably just feels a lot nicer as well you're not building those relationships and then throwing people at, you know, out for no reason if you like. Yeah we, we uh, you know I look, I look back with that slight misty tint in my eyes that we were a family business in the sense of that we worked really quite hard we played together a lot as well with all the cliches that, that goes with that and when somebody left either through our choice or theirs we took it personally 
And that's a weakness. That's not necessarily a strength. But, you know, whether we had to let somebody go, we would say to ourselves, what did we do? Did we hire the wrong person? Did we manage them in the wrong way? Why didn't we set them up to be successful? And if somebody left, we'd take it super personally, like a dumped boyfriend or girlfriend that, what, what do you mean you don't want to stay here? We think this is the best place in the world. Why would you possibly want to leave? And therefore, we just didn't have the culture of the revolving door and the, oh, you know, we'll hire a junior HR person until we can afford a senior one and then we'll get rid of them. It just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't culturally uh, fit for us. I'm very mindful of one of the points you made over lunch. So having flagged that I've mentioned the recession a couple of times in episodes, and and as I said to you, I've, I've actually, this has been a week of interviews and I, you know, I'm ashamed to admit, I've definitely said it in others. I'm not going to ask the recession question, but I'm going to ask a question that you, you know, a bit like IR35, you can choose whether you're you're taking as a recession question or not. Because we've talked about the story. I do want to touch on kind of the, the end of the journey shortly. But I know that, and you mentioned 2001 was a difficult time. You mentioned something about carpet tiles. So again, I'm not talking about recession, but I would love to hear about that period and kind of the journey in and particularly the journey out and how you turn the business around. Yeah, well, we, we were three and a bit years old at the time, I guess. And most of our work had been British corporates defending against the rise of American dot-coms. So we were doing work for people like Argos and, and Woolworths, God rest their soul, who were basically fighting against e-toys and the arrival of Amazon and people who were disrupting their markets. We were doing work for Tesco on the Tesco direct side, things like that. And when the dot-com bubble burst, they all suddenly could have a breathe a sigh of relief. And they no longer had to suddenly compete with all this new channel stuff in quite the vigor they had. And our order book dried up. And we were just we were a bit unlucky because we had some big projects came to an end and created a fault line in our pipeline. Bad planning on our part, something else we touched on at lunchtime about having all your projects lined up to finish at once. And we had this reduction in demand. So we went through quite an awkward period. I think it was in Q4 uh, of that year. And we had to let most of our staff go. In fact, our, our head of finance, his last task was to write his own redundancy letter and, and pass it across the desk for me to sign and for him to, to, to walk out the door. That was a difficult time. So I had a co-founder at the time who joined uh, and, and, and bought into a percentage of the business after I'd been running for about a year. And him and I were the directors and owners of the business. And we were the last two people in the company that December. It was quite sweet because um, our team had got their redundancy payments. We didn't have any money. And they took us out for lunch at Christmas because we couldn't afford to take the team out for lunch. That blessing was nice. Actually, at that lunch, I took a call from a client who ended up giving us a project in January and I went off and, and was a one-man freelance consultant project director again and then hired the team back as associates to come and run on that project and then we rebuilt the company out of there. But the carpet tile story was basically we went to our accountants in November or December and said we can't afford to pay the rent on, I think it was due at Christmas and we're having to let everybody go and we can just make payroll, what, what should we do? And they said we should get an insolvency practitioner in because we were quite nervous about being struck off at company's house, didn't understand anything about it. And they said, well, if you get an insolvency practitioner in and you just talk through the options and you seem to have been, you've done a good job of managing the fact that you owe people money and you intended to pay them and you've, you've done it all. So the insolvency practitioner came into our office and said, okay, so we need to just value all your fixed assets. And what do you own in this office? And we own none, you know, we probably own the desks, but they're not worth anything. The computers were devaluing quicker than, than anything else. And I said, oh, we put this carpet down. And he said, oh, well, you could probably sell these carpet tiles for a pound each. So we'll put, you know, 150 quid down for the carpet tiles. And that was literally 
you know, how we proved the business was still solvent. We could just about make it through Christmas. And then the, the project that I talked about in January came through. So, you know, that was our little bit of learning that not everything was um, you know, champagne and cigars when you're growing a small business. Wow. I mean, that that's quite a story. And, and to your point, actually, to the point where the team have to take you out for, for Christmas lunch. Right? It sounds like you know, great timing and, and fortune in that sort of new project, I guess. How did you, you and your co-founder rally yourselves to do that again? Because I imagine it's quite a traumatic period going down that fast. Was there any conversations where you just went, should we just you know, sack this in and go be associates ourselves? Go get a proper job, as my mother would have still called it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think we... You know, we'd we'd signed a ten-year lease on an office with a you know a, a no break and upwards only rent review at five years, and we were probably only about two years into that or something. So, so there was just some, and I think we had our pride and our egos, and and you know we told all our mates in the pub that we'd started a business, and that was kind of cool, and we were you know having a great time doing it. So I just don't think we ever considered having to stop until somebody had literally turned the lights out and changed the locks and not let us go in. That would be, you know, maybe it was young youth naivety or, you know, whatever age we were, their mid-20s, late-20s. There was just no consideration that we should go do something else. And that's probably not something I should be proud of. I should have, as a strategy consultant, I should have had 10 options and weighted them in some format or something, you know. I think we just carried on carrying on. I think, like you say, kind of, that's as good as reason as any. You know, there's just as much rationale to go and do something else, but... If it's what you know, it's worked, it could work again. And it's a little bit back to the associate side, but I, the end of the journey is kind of interesting, I think, equally because of that associate model. So we fast forward after, you know, you'd valued your carpet tiles for a, for a pound each. You didn't keep any, by the way, did you? It was kind of okay, memento. You found one and put it yeah. on the wall. No, no, no. <laughs> I've got a few bits. For, I've still got the um, the plastic um, logo that was on the office door, the you know, identifier. Oh, I've still yeah. got that in my uh, my study at home, but I don't have any of the carpet tiles. <laughs> Oh, well, you know, whoever's in that office now might be able to send you if you, uh, you can find them. But ultimately, you ended up selling that business. And again, thinking about others on a similar journey, common orthodoxy. I met with someone only the other week and, you know, they highly said, well, we were going through this process, but so-and-so said we needed more employees or you know, actually associates is, is flighty. You, as someone who sold a business with associates, I'd love to... I guess, get again, the pros and cons that came with that, you know, you were having these conversations with suitors. How did you manage to sell that business if it was a manage? And what were the kind of things that people saw positively and negatively for others to learn from if, if they're thinking the same? Yeah, well, our, our sales story is a case of right time, right place. We didn't have the for sale sign up. We hadn't been through a structured process. We had tried it a bit earlier to be a bit more structured about it and not found the right kind of deal. But at the time, we weren't um, particularly actively seeking anybody. The way that came about was that um, friends of ours in the industry had sold their business uh, to Engine Group two or three years beforehand. They had a public sector version of, of what we did in the private sector. Our clients then were retailers, banks and media companies. And they had done the same for public sector organizations at like Channel Shift and digital, uh, taking on the digital challenges and what have you. And they saw the fact that the government was changed, a changed government and was about to cut public sector spending and were looking for a private sector partner to, to bring in to, to help with that uh, change in, in, in government spending policy and therefore probably a, a risk to their business. And we have known them for many years and done whatever. And they basically went to the border engine and said, we should buy CBL and bolt them in and similar skill set. We can move our people around and that's what we should do. So that was the kind of right place, right time, as opposed to being, you know, then 
the management engine and for the people who don't know engines an advertising agency conglomerate a mini version of wpp or omnicom or whatever but about a thousand people at the time in london with about um 12 uh, agencies underneath it, all marcoms apart from uh, the public sector consulting one i talked about they really didn't understand our model at all because we had no retainers and virtually the whole business was based on retainers 20 years ago when, when they bought us 15 years ago sorry and they'd come to visit our office and it would be just empty desks and two or three people. And we'd be claiming to have 10 or 12 staff and about 30 or 40 associates working for us. And they'd just look in disbelief thinking we were lying. Because of course, to us, they were right on client site. Because this is all obviously pre our current working patterns. Uh, I feel like I've done what I did to you at lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, we came yeah, out to yeah. my office, Simon. Here is yeah. my team who are not here and all conveniently on lunch. Yeah, not a single person in your, in your office. Not even my dog. Yeah, was not, in there. Not, not even the dog had deserted you. <laughs> but, you know, and they'd come up to the office because we're only a few hundred yards up the road as it happened and just been disbelief that our revenue and our profit and, and our client list was, was what it was. And of course, because we had the trust of the guys who they'd bought two or three years earlier, they, they got over that and we, we worked together and everything. So, they already didn't understand our model because in, in, it was just unfamiliar to them in two or three key facets. So the fact that we then used associates was just another thing that they didn't really, you know, they just wasn't, they used freelancers to produce and direct adverts and things. They used that, but they never built their core business. Their core advertising agency model was based on having creatives come up with ideas that were managed by account suits and, and all the rest of it. And they were all on the permanent team. So it was just another part of our business they didn't understand. And when we could demonstrate to them that we could manage supply through the things that we've just been talking about and manage demand through biz dev, then, then it, it wasn't too hard in the end for them to get. And I still think, I honestly think it's a little bit naive, not the right word. I think the, the new, you know, when we were doing this was back in 2010, so what was that 13 years ago now? And it was relatively new as a model back then. It was, you know, not as well established as it is now with flexible working and portfolio careers and all of these things that we're very familiar with. So it was, you know, a bit more scarily new. I think nowadays, the businesses I've been working with over the last few years, we're sort of nearly proud of the agility we've got through having a, you know, a basic in-house and then using the fluctuations of capacity. Uh, or, or expertise requirements. I can't imagine you're ever going to hire a per permanent full-time audio editor here because you need a few hours a month of one, you know, and actually that's something that you could get in the market just as, far more effectively than you can by having somebody sat waiting for you to need to edit a podcast. I think to your point, actually, that, that way the world has changed and those skills and resources, you know, it's, it's very true. And I think if I look at across sort of clients and firms I know, you know, I can't think of one where there isn't a sole associate that's sort of being used. And maybe a, another way to ask the question, and you might not have an answer to this, but I'm, I'm going to ask it is, obviously, in your case, right place, right time, you, know, you had an associate based business buying you as an associate based business, it was a natural fit, albeit the group didn't understand, but they trusted them. We're going to talk about it a bit later, but you've advised a number of businesses, you know, a lot more. Do you know anyone else who sold with that similar kind of really heavy associate skew? And again, whether that was, you know, what challenges they had, had to overcome if they were different to yours? I know one business that sold with similar ratios. It was started by one of my um, old co co colleagues um, and therefore they replicated the model and they sold to an American, to a large American company. And they, their ratios were the same, and they were as disinterested in the that as, as as engine ended up being in ours, as long as we could make it work. I think if you can get over the sticker shock, I think if you're being bought by another consultancy who has run the policy of freelancers are the devil, 
for the last 20 years, they're not going to buy a business that's based on associates because it's just going to be, you know, they're going to get organ rejection. Whereas if you're being so, if you're trying to sell to somebody who's in a parallel industry and you're a bolt on or there's, you know, the, the, the reason for coming together is different than consultancy buying consultancy, then I think it should be a non-issue in, in many cases. But if it is, you know, one of the big established consultancies who run a 99% permanent labor force and you're running a 10% permanent labor force, I doubt you're going to get them over the psychological hump. So you mentioned around what you were doing back in 2010, but the associate model was quite new. And I wanted to turn to something else that I don't know whether you'd say is new or not, but I just hear a lot of consultancies doing it lately, which is trying to get out of consulting. You know, the as we all know, tech is sexy, you know, it's valued on revenue multiples. Consulting is not valued on revenue multiples. It's people-based. It's like, I think you were saying at lunch, like people, all of the things you have to deal with people is what makes a people business challenging. Now, I'm sure tech people would say it's no different, but you, I know when you were at CVL and you mentioned around your sort of startup Metis, which we, we may come on to as well. I know you highlighted before this, you spent a lot of money trying to get out of consulting. Yeah. Tell me how that worked and what would you advise others to do? Well, yeah, make more success of it than we did. If you're going to do it at all, would be, uh, would be my main piece of advice. Uh, we, we had a few people in our business who had, you know, far, far brighter than me on commercial strategy and had qualifications to, to match it. And, and they would quite rightly, you know, sit in meetings saying, this business isn't scalable. It's only the number of days to build times average day rate equals revenue. We need something that breaks that model. And, they, and you know, and, and I, nearly everybody I've spoken to has had a go at this. And our graveyard is littered with a resourcing business, a testing business. Uh, we had to go at a database piece of software, and I can't remember what it did now. We had uh, lots of things that we tried to do. And we would basically take a significant amount of what could have been profit and we would pour it into whatever the next thing was that was going to get us out of this model of day rate times times people equals income. And I think that, you know, when we weren't successful on, on any of those, which is why I ended up having a consulting business. And, and my advice would be, well, if you're going to do it, my advice would be isolate it completely from the consulting business and treat it as uh, a venture investment in the same way as you would if you, the shareholders or partners or wh whoever it might be, would take that money out as a dividend at the end of the year or the quarter, and you'd then place it into an investment in something else, which you know you, you may do through uh, investment funds or something. Treat it literally as an arm's length investment like that, so that each quarter you have to write a check and it has to go somewhere else into that business and, and do that. If you blend the resources and the lines become blurred and you get emotionally attached to it, I think we can, you know, we, we didn't make, we made some very irrational decisions and carried on doing things when we should have taken them outside and shot them a lot earlier because they were sat in our office. They were blended with our team. They were our people. They'd help out on consulting projects. Or if we had some bench time, we'd send our consultants to go work on, on these projects. And therefore, you know, we, we didn't make the best commercial decisions. So I'd keep them separate. I'd treat them as venture investments. The other thing I would do is genuinely look at why you should be doing that thing and why you should be doing it now. So if you genuinely have a way of leveraging the client relationships or the skills and experience you've learned on the projects or whatever it is that makes you think that that is an opportunity that you've got an advantage in versus the rest of the market or, or first move or something, then, you know, absolutely have that stood up to scrutiny externally. And be careful you don't ruin any client relationships by saying, hey, come and try our new service product thing. 
and therefore it could end up um, poisoning existing great consultancy relationships. I think that's lower risk, but I just my main advice would be to choose it separately and literally write a check at the end of the quarter or the year and decide whether to put your name at the top of it or the venture's name at the top of it and, and do that as a conscious decision. I think it's a great point around, like you said, just treat it like an investment. And I also imagine to what you're saying around, you know, what's your right to do that? Why why should you be doing that? Judge it the same way. You know, if, if someone came to you in the street as an individual and said, would you put, I don't know, 5,000 or 10,000 pounds into my startup? Well, if it's not something you have a passion for or a skill for, why is it going to work? Those are great structural reasons or structural ways to set it up for success. Thinking again about, to your point, that graveyard, were there any commonalities in the reasons those failed? Or was it simply, like you say, it was that bench time, it was kind of, we went for moonshots, we had no right to do it, it was side of desk? Or was there anything in, inherent in the products or the process you followed that caused those failures that others could learn from? I think what we did was look for parallels in the service offering. So one of them was a testing business because we were, we, we, we didn't do design and build of systems. Therefore, we were obviously, we were doing the strategy of to what should something do. We were then doing the uh, requirements and the program and project management and all the, everything around it and, and developers and, and big companies and medium sized companies were doing. And we thought, well, as a third party, if we've done the requirements and the, the sort of business design, then actually we're the best people to test that software because we've done, you know, that was the sort of need. And that makes perfect sense in, in some sort of MBA casebook. But we didn't know anything about testing. And, and, you know, and our clients didn't really want to pay. And so, so what would I learn from that is that just because there's a potential match in one or two of the areas, as in our clients pay for that and we sit next to the people who do it, doesn't mean you're the right people to be doing it. And also do it more heartedly. We did it half-heartedly. And I, I have a, an old analogy, and you, you know how much I live my life on analogies, but they often say that no matter how big an opponent is in rugby, if you go into the tackle committed, then you might not bring them down, but you won't get hurt. So a little person can tackle a big person as long as they're committed. But if you go in half-heartedly, regardless of the size difference, you'll probably get injured more often. And that was the same in my experience in business. If you go headlong into it, fully committed, you might not be successful, but it probably won't damage you either financially or mentally. Whereas if you go into something half-heartedly, then the chances are you're going to get hurt. And, and we got not damaged irreparably, but we burnt quite a lot of money on, on those uh, ventures that were trying to get us out of consulting. Yeah, I, well, as a avid rugby fan and former rugby player, I, I've been on the physical end of that metaphor and and you are quite right. Yeah, the uh, going half-hearted, no matter what hurts, whereas, yeah, you go all in, more times than not, it doesn't hurt. You know, the odd knee surgery says so sometimes it can still hurt. But to your point, you know, there's there's always outliers. And I I think that brings us quite nicely onto, I'll tee it up as your second attempt at, at software. And you might tell me that's a very, very cruel or very unfair way of explaining it. But I'm interested, you know, obviously you'd sold CVL, you'd, you'd been through that earnout. You then decided, and maybe it was just to take your own advice and see if you could do it with all of that advice. You went off to launch a tech startup. How did that conversation come about? It's interesting, actually. So the, there was a gap in between, which you might want to come back and talk about later. I, I, I did a bit of traveling. When I came back from traveling, I took a freelance consulting role while working out what to do next. And I got a phone call from an old client and I went and did some work at John Lewis Partners at Waitrose doing some program work there while sort of deciding what to do next. I had a great time and put a little team together of, of some old associates and, you know, some old mates. And, and we did a, a great project. While I was there, somebody came to me 
and said they'd had this idea for a piece of software that they thought was in uh, there was a need in the market for medium and smaller consultancies, which we know now know and love as PSA, professional services automation. And they'd basically written half a spec or the spec or what have you and said, but they didn't have time to do it. And they were looking for somebody who understood consulting, understood a little bit about overseeing software development, could do a bit of sales and had some time on their hands. And unfortunately for me, or, or fortunately, I ticked all, all of those boxes. So that's how we got the idea. It wasn't my idea. is basically how it came about. And then I went to somebody who was the, the JP who'd been the guy who'd helped us sell our business to Engine by by bringing us into the group. And he was, uh, had also left Engine and was looking for his next project and understood the business because he'd run their public sector business for some years. And so he came and joined us, or, or we got together to do it. And basically, we took the idea and started a business that was writing software to be a PSA and became a PSA. And we raised quite a lot of money from people in you know, angel investors and, and some small funds. Um, developed some software. We had a team outsourced in the Ukraine who were writing that software for us. And we got through, you know, we were reasonably successful at getting some trial customers on board. And we think was quite innovative at the time. I mean, now people have caught up. It's quite a few years ago. What we worked out, you know, unfortunately, after about two years was that our ability to raise money far exceeded our ability to sell software licenses. So, you know, in the end, it didn't hockey stick grow in the way that we hoped it would. Um, and we ended up selling it to a, a software company in, in the north and returning some of the cash to investors, which is a very surprising thing to ever do is to give an in angel investor some of their money back and say, we decided not to spend your cash. We've sold the business. You can have some of it back. <laughs> well, yes, I, I, yeah, there are lots of successes in Silicon Valley and, and the tech world, but I, I do also personally have some healthy cynicism of, to your point, how many today in today's world, how many startups are there to raise funds and not actually to deliver products. But yeah, to your point, it sounds like you actually built the thing and having, a, I would never say it got more than a fleeting idea, but I think that this was you know, to the point around how we met JP. I was introduced because a friend and I toyed with doing a PSA system many moons ago. JP, I think, encouraged us not to. <laughs> but yeah, actually getting a product like that to market and selling licenses is a fantastic thing. And sounds like you, in doing that, got vastly further than you had with the previous iterations in CBL. Was it just product, to your point, sort of person product fit? You know, you got the industry, you know, I don't know, was it JP with the requirements or was it someone else? No, it was somebody else. Someone else. So, you know, this third person had the requirements. Was it more just that team and people was it you all went all in or was there another sort of secret ingredient that got you from idea to fully fledged system? So I think the main thing here is that we basically, this is what we did for two years. So JP and I didn't have other jobs. After a while, JP was coming out of his uh, previous uh, freelance role. I'd finished mine. We had um, a bit of money that we could get into it from our own pockets. We then, as I say, quickly raised other money and we built a team and did it. And this is all we did. This is what we did. And we understood the industry, or we thought we did. And, you know, we, we were reasonably good at being quite driven and, and quite focused. And that, that's why it got further. So there's lots of great things that went on with that business. We learned, we spoke to over 100, 120 medium-sized consultancy businesses as part of the sales process and part of the research and everything, which was insightful in itself and sort of then gave me a little bit of right to, to go on and then advise businesses afterwards, as, as well as sitting on the board at Engine with 12 or 14 agencies under us. So I then had the chops kind of to be confident doing that. But it also taught us a lot about what companies are like. And one of the things that small businesses are like is that the priorities change quite quickly. 
And I'm sure I was exactly the same when I was the MD of a, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 person business. This week, the biggest problem would be our data's crap and we don't know which clients are profitable and which people are. And then in three weeks time, um, and then we set, we start a project to get better at that and i.e. go buy some software to help us with this. And then in three weeks time, a client would fire us or a member of staff, senior member of staff would, would resign or something. And all of a sudden that was the biggest priority. And it was like watching 11 year olds play football. They all just chased the ball up and down the field. And we would find when we're trying to sell this software to people that it would be the biggest, most important thing on the MD or managing partner's desk for a few weeks. And then something else would happen. And our sales cycle was kind of have a trial, you know, 10 to 12 weeks, practice with it, see what you think, and then sign up. And we were not getting them through that long enough because it wasn't staying at the top of the pile long enough. And most of the companies we spoke to had not gone ahead. We lost a few competitively. There were products that were better at certain things than us out there, of course. But the vast majority of our prospects were DNBs, did not buy. And then they'd come back six months later and say, oh, can we just pick that up again? And you go, okay, the 11-year-olds have obviously got down the other end of the pitch now and brought the ball with them. And so, you know, that, that was, um, you know, I'm sure we did lots of things wrong as well, but that was one of the key learnings of the market was that the priorities shift more quickly than our sales cycle. So, Simon, you, you nicely teed me up there for another area I wanted to ask about. And I, I was going to talk about actually those, that advisory part of your career and those non-exec roles. But you mentioned around the 120 firms you spoke to. And, and even in today's, you know, today's market with surveys and LinkedIn and all of this, anyone who's spoken to 120 people is, is quite rare. You know, I think that the two of them are in this room between you and Metis and, and me and the podcast. And this might be the, the lead into your advisory sort of time. But Actually, what were some of those key takeaways? I'm sure some of them, after 120 coffees, are seared into your brain. You know, was everyone struggling with PSA, or to your point of football? Actually, was it you know something else that all of the 11 year olds were were running to for want to keep in the metaphor? Yeah, so I think one of our key learnings was that nobody cared about the numbers in their business as much as we did when we were running our businesses, or, or few people did. We thought everybody cared about utilization, net profit, gross profit, client churn, client satisfaction. We, we just thought that's how everybody worked. And, and it's not. And it's actually um, interesting whether I should, you know, we questioned ourselves whether we'd overmanaged our businesses when we were running them and, and maybe we had. So I think that was one of the things. The other thing I think was that there was very little, and it may have changed a few years ago now, there was very little professional operations people, very few professional operations people in these businesses consultancies in our experience, and we talk to management consultancies, as we call them now, we talk to architects, engineers, the people, you know, it was a broader definition than pure management consultancies, but only slightly different. And there were 10, 10 to 50 employees, the vast majority of them. Their operations team were woefully underskilled and experienced compared to their consulting teams. And we found it interesting that, you know, really successful people who would be great at their craft didn't also value bringing people in to run the business well. And that whole thing of on your business and in your business, and, and they really weren't giving the same amount of value to the uh, on your business part as, as I would have, you know, kind of as we did, as, as I would have thought. And I think also that our software product was based on you having six key metrics that matter, you know, to hand, you know, the whole time. And people just didn't have that. If you said to somebody, what is your utilization? Which clients make? How much profit did you make on that project last month? They wouldn't have the answer. And I think there are tools now to make that much easier, of which, you know, we tried to be one of them. But I think that surprised us that, that people weren't as focused on that as we'd have liked, because we'd have sold more software if they had been. And how does that then, and maybe it was that advice that spurred the advisory piece, but I was going to ask how you got into it, but I think you kind of teed it up there. Kind of how did you bring that 
into building your advisory career? Because you mentioned those interviews gave you the chops to do it. So was it a case that you said, well, now I know what these firms are struggling with. I'm going to go and see if I can help people. Was it actually more organic? You know, you mentioned engine sort of you were pulled up to that board and then this advice came with you kind of in those early days. How did you turn what was those 120 interviews into the advisory career you then had, if that was indeed what you did? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, I think we've worked out by now, I'm not as planned as, as that. Um, so I, again, I can retrospectively tell you that was my strategy, um, but I, I'd be fibbing. I, I've spent the last five years doing the non-exec advisory piece. I've had six or eight businesses that, that I've worked with over the year, that, that period. You know, I went back and had a quick look because I thought you'd ask and One of them was a former client. One of them was a former colleague from CVL, one a colleague from Engine, one of them is a previous associate of ours who'd, who'd gone and started a consulting business. One was a personal friend. I generally, I'd caution against that. I have an old, another adage for you that is make your friends in business, don't take your friends into business. So we treaded very carefully into that. And actually it's worked really well, but we were kind of super conscious of not working with your mates and we're still friends. So that's, that's done. And the rest came from network contacts. So there wasn't a pattern that they'd come from that era. They, they've come from previous things. But I think the value was, you know, I think that if you were to ask the people I've been on their boards, they brought me in because of my sort of fastidious obsession with process and detail, whereas they preferred to get on and do the thing they did, whether that was marketing or consulting or whatever. And I would bring quite a lot of experience and, and tenacity to, we should just put the minimum amount of required process in here. And that was sort of a project grow up or project maturity type thing for the business was probably why most people were interested. And again, because we've you know, been involved in, in M&A a little bit, then that, that meant we could do some of that as well. So you, you've teed me up nicely because to your point of coming into with that process mindset and, and helping people do that project to grow up, I guess, what were the two or three things you found yourself doing in every one of those businesses? And you mentioned, obviously, some was consulting, some were Marcoms. Are they the same or actually were there two or three things you always had to do in a consulting business and two or three things that were different you always had to do in a Marcoms business? I think that they, I'm, I'm going to stereotypicalize now, but the Marcoms businesses was basic processes of managing things like resource management and pipeline management and those sorts of areas that were just kind of boring process things that I think they were, they were less good at. I recognize the value of, but just didn't well, surround themselves with people who got a kick from that. And, and maybe I did a bit more. I think the consulting businesses, quite a lot of work was on proposition. I think the Marcoms businesses, because they're used to working on client propositions, are quite, I mean, you, you do say a little bit of cobblers have bad shoes, don't you? But they actually at least understood that and had talked about and thought about their proposition more. I think the consultancies were less, were sort of a bit more where bright people will do nearly anything for anybody. And therefore the proposition work was a common theme for them. And they varied as well as where they are in their maturity, of course. You know, most of the businesses I've worked with are medium size uh, in their sector. They're not the very biggest or, or very smallest. And some of them have been going, you know, an average of nobody's been going less than three or five years and some have been going as long as 10 or 20. So, you know, some of them would have more mature propositions and more mature processes. But most of them were hiring, were you know, hiring me in because I'd give them a boost in those areas. And of all, I'm I'm going really narrow here, but of all of those things, if you were only able to do you know, one of those, if feels like a terribly obvious question, but yeah, I'm going to ask it anyway. What was that thing that had a disproportional impact on for both or for either? You know, to your point of proposition, was it that holistic? You know, what are we here for? What's our purpose? Or was there something really specific? You know, pick your market and stay there. To your point of 
doing everyone everything for everyone was there any commonalities like that of kind of if someone just picked up one thing what is that thing that always had a disproportional impact i think establishing a rhythm was probably a drumbeat i was what i would call it would would be the thing that had the most impact and that drumbeat might be weekly monthly or quarterly we talked a bit earlier about the eos model we we you know when i wasn't sort of signed up to that particularly as a format but generally just bringing into a business that says what, oh, sorry, what's the weekly meeting you guys are having? I, I wasn't going to those because that was the management of, of the thing. What's the weekly meeting you're having? What's the monthly meeting we're having? What's the quarterly meeting we're having? What's the piece of paper that goes to each one or the dashboard if we were clever enough? And just bringing that heartbeat or drumbeat to the business just meant that those things got looked at. And particularly when businesses were busy or were busy doing sales because they weren't busy doing delivery, it was so easy to not have the weekly stand-up or the monthly board meeting or management meeting or whatever. But because I was turning up, they would have the meeting. And because I was turning up, they'd have done the actions. So just the very fact, because if we're paying the guy to come, we better we might as well do the homework or he's going to you know, make us feel naughty and we're wasting our money. We might as well spend it down the pub rather than my non-exec fee. So the fact that we had a, a rhythm and I would turn up and go, you know, there's some actions from last month. Should we run through them, kids? Meant that they got done. And that was just, uh, you know, no particular value I added. The fact that it was happening is what added the value. Well, like you said, we talked about EOS. For anyone who doesn't know, Entrepreneurial Operating System, great book called Traction, or I have to remember what the fable's called. We talked about the two of them. Um, I'll stick it in the show notes because I'll be able to find it afterwards. But yeah, I, I know for our business, like you say, just that it feels at sometimes frivolous, but having a meeting every week, it was clarified by you, but a management meeting, a drumbeat of management activity has certainly helped us. And so, yeah, to your point, actually, if that's the thing people don't have, now now we have it. I couldn't imagine running a business without that. No, and I think the interesting thing is, and I've never sort of quantified it, but I would imagine you could look at how much of that meeting should be spent on sales, how much on people, how much on operations, how much on... And you, you could sort of work out that all topics need touching every time, but there's, you know, the graphic equalizer is going to vary depending on the circumstances. But I, I can't imagine a world where you don't talk about age debtors every week. I mean, that just to me is alien. If somebody owes you money, it's going to be the thing that kills any business if, you know, God forbid it gets bad enough then that should be on every week's agenda. Whatever you pick, whether it's people who owe is more than, you know, X thousand, that's more than X days, Y days overdue or something. But that should be everybody's business and it should be regular. And, you know, and those sorts of things are, are the sort of boring but important parts of running a professional services company or an agency. No, definitely. And I'm, I'm not going to make any references towards current economic climate. So, you know, at all points, be looking at your age debtors would be my advice or would be your advice, Simon. I have very little advice in this respect. I think <laughs> you are much more qualified than I am. I'm going to, ju- and there's no good segue to this, but just you mentioned a couple over lunch. You mentioned a few when we've spoken before, and I I don't know if this is quick fire or, or not, but you, you're a man who has some great turns of phrase. And so I just wanted to ask about a few of them just because I found them, they they piqued my interest, and so I wanted to hear what they actually meant. So in no particular order, I'm going to hunt with a spear, but catch with a net. Uh, yeah. So and I have to say right away, these might be people's copyrighted or owned phrases. I don't claim to have come up with any of them. I use them a lot, and, and it may be that other people own, you know, I picked them up out of business books subconsciously years ago. And if I do, then I apologize for not being able to credit them. Or I might have made them up once in a meeting. Who knows? How with the spear catch with the net? So I think consultancies should have a 
laser focused proposition that is super easy to describe. You could, you know, we used to use the test of would my mum get this type thing. And she wasn't in professional services. She was a typist, we remember, from Kelly's. She had a nail file. Yeah, she, she was a nail Kelly's file. Girl. She yeah. was a Kelly's girl. You got it. I should have asked, did you give your associates nail files? No, we, we didn't, didn't. We okay. didn't. We didn't. That, that would have caused us... That um, would have been interesting to have branded... Rather than mouse mats, we should have had branded nail files. I should also point out that my late mother was an entrepreneur who ran a business, manufacturing business in Yorkshire later in her life. So I don't She didn't make the nail files. She didn't make the nail files. It would have been the perfect... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Levi's jeans and all that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So you should have a laser-focused, I think one should have a laser-focused proposition that's simple, clear to define, and, and you know, really differentiated in terms of it's this thing we do and we do it really well. And that's the spear. But actually, we should catch with a net. And what that means is that we'll do nearly anything for nearly anybody. And that's an exaggeration to make a point. I don't think you should do new things for new clients. So if you're going to step off your laser point and your experience area, then do it for a client where you already have trust and knowledge of each other. So don't do new things for new people. But if you've got an existing client who you know and you trust and they trust you and therefore you've got each other's backs on this and there's an opportunity for you to go slightly off beam and do something that you believe you can do but you haven't done it before, then that's the way to do it. And that's my idea of catch with the net. Solve the client problems, put the right team together. If you run an associate model, it's much easier to put the right team together, I would argue, and go work on that together with the client and solve the problem. But don't take that to market as a broad, we'll do anything for you, give us a ring. Go to market with the pointy bit of the stick. Well, great advice. And as a marketer for consulting firms, I, I don't probably have a, such a pithy phrase, but I, you know, time and again for our clients and you know, when, when I'm speaking to others in the market, like, like you highlight, I think a lot of consultancies catch with a net, so they think they need to hunt with a net which would make sense if you were a fisherman, but you're in the, in the way the analogy is framed, to your point, if you've got that proposition that we everything to everyone, you're never special. And so actually going into clients is much harder. I, I really like your point, and I'm sure there's a lovely two-by-two two somewhere of current client, new client. Current proposition, but there is, yeah. And it's no doubt owned by somebody whose name, unfortunately, I can't credit it with. But actually, again, you know, that how do you expand what you do, do it in safe, you know, safe harbours and then go out and take it where the seas are rougher, trying to keep the water a fishy metaphor is great advice. So that's one. So I've got two more. I'm just going to rattle through again. I don't think there's any segues. So I'll just say it is run with bad news, walk with good or walk, walk slowly, slowly with good. Walk slowly yeah, yeah, with walk good. Good. So if, if we know what the problem is, we can work on it together. If you keep the problem to yourself and you go try and deal with it, or you just, you know, go home that day without sharing it with us, we can't help you. We used to have a cultural phrase in CVR many years ago that says, if you're in the shit, we're going to come and bring shovels and we're going to dig you out of it. We're just going to take the piss out of you mercilessly while we do it. And that was our, our cultural thing was we're always here for you. We might just give you a ribbing while we're getting you out of it, whatever it, that might be with a client problem or something. But the fact was that you alert us the minute you know something's gone wrong. And so we would say, if, if, if you screwed up and something's gone wrong, or whether it's you or the circumstances or whatever it is, run towards us with the bad news and we can help you out. If you've won a pitch or you've won an award or something great's happened, wander down when you get chance to come and tell us because you know we can celebrate that in, in good time. But run with the bad news because then we can help you. If you try and cover it up or you hide it from us, it's only going to get harder to deal with. Again, some very good advice. It's, uh, I'm seeing a little... You know, 
at some point I'm seeing a book, Simon, of... of, of a, a, a toilet accompaniment book of pithy phrases from a, a, a management consultant. Bu- business lessons from a life in consulting. And the last one I've got, and just so you can process it, I'm going to ask you if there's any others that I don't have by the way at the end of this, <laughs> but is aim for the middle of the zone of possible agreement. Yeah, so you, you pick another, you get a little, another Simon anecdote here. So there's a company called Zopa, who nowadays are known for being a the pseudo bank. Yeah, they started as peer-to-peer lending, absolutely. And there were three or four guys who came out of what I think was Egg, which was the Prudential launching a credit card way back when. And they created a business called Zopa, which was person-to-person lending. They were a client of ours. We did a whole load of user interaction design and experience journey mapping and things for them when they first started out on what at the time was brand new peer-to-peer lending. And those founders, and I didn't even know what Zopa was because I hadn't been to business school. So I had to look it up. And it's a zone of possible agreement, as you say. And in case anybody doesn't know, I apologize if I'm patronizing everybody that does. I did but, not know what it was. So oh, okay. I'm sure I others know. won't. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe right. I just, I'm the only one. Well, but. anyway, so that's what Zopa stands for, by the way, anybody who banks with them or borrows from them or whatever. But zone of possible agreement is basically the overlap between what you're prepared to pay something for and I'm prepared to sell it for. So if you, you know, if I'm selling my car for, you know, the sticker price is 750 quid, but I'd take 500 and you're in the market for a car and you, for the spec and age and whatever, you're prepared to pay a thousand. Our Zopa is 500 to a thousand because you'd go as, as low as 500, I'd pay as much as that. So if you aim for the middle of the Zopa on every deal, then you've both left as happy as possible. I've never taken pleasure from screwing down anybody to get the last squeeze out of whether that's a salary negotiation or a product or service purchase or, or anything like that. I just It's just not in my DNA to do that. If there's somewhere we can get into the middle of the zone, and we never really know because we don't declare those numbers, then that's the best place to be. And I just think philosophically, if you go through life saying, how can I make this the most positive for both parties, then you're probably going to get a better deal out of it in the end. Yeah, another another grace piece of advice, whether it's consulting firm or life. And, and you are right, there's rarely does anyone feel good if, you know, like you say, you've squeezed or they've squeezed. You know, we should aim for that Zopa. And yeah, I was, now I know what the platform meant. I actually did. I, I did some peer-to-peer lending with them way back when they did used to do that. So now I do know. And they, as I said, I teed you up for it just so you could process it. So I, mean, I don't have any more on my list, but are there any other classic Simon phrases that our listeners would benefit from knowing? I don't think so. I mean, I, it's something that I get ribbed about quite a lot by the people I work with is that uh, uh, they roll their eyes and go, here comes another one of his phrases or another one of his stories, but none of them, uh, none of them spring to mind, you lucky people. Well, I think we've had the pleasure of three, and I'm sure yeah. at, if there's a round two, we can we can find more that will come up over the future. So I want to take quite a leap of topic. You teed me up for it earlier, and it just it didn't naturally fit, but it's something I was really intrigued in in terms of your journey. So you mentioned you had that gap year. I understand that was actually gap year or year and a bit. And now some people might say, okay, well, you'd sold a business. Obviously, that's the thing to do. Others might say, bloody hell, you know, you've sold a business, but you've still you know, still got a career to go. You've, everyone's got bills to pay. I think wherever you are in your life, taking 18 months out to literally travel the world is a huge amount of time. Like even, you know, teenagers will have gap years, but rarely, if you have 12 months, it's a, you know, finding yourself. If it's 18 months, you know, 18, what are you doing? How did you decide, right, this is the time? And I guess what took you on that journey and what led you to do it? So when we sold to Engine, one of the attractions for me was that part of the business plan of the, the group, the, of the parent company, was to expand into Asia. 
And there was a lot of attractions for me to, to sell the business to them. We had a, a high reliance on a small number of clients, which is always a risk. We had a high reliance on a small number of individuals at the top of our team, which is always a risk. So they were the negative drivers. Positive drivers were that they had toys to play with I couldn't play with. So they had a graduate scheme, which I'd missed, you know, we hadn't have been able to do. We had um, a high performance, high potential management training development area, which again, we couldn't do because of our scale and, and our model that we've talked a lot about. So there was, an, and the other thing was that we had this Asian expansion that was, we'd just opened an office in Hong Kong and the plan was to grow the engine model over there. And I was very attractive and very open about the fact that I would move over to Hong Kong or, or Singapore after a few years. And part of that, if it worked for everybody, would be that I would help uh, build Asia, Engine Asia. My wife and I, we don't have kids, so we weren't into the school system and the restrictions and, and things that come with that. So that would have been a, and she worked for a global company, so a relocation was was feasible, and that all sounded great. Now, as it happens, the engine piece didn't come off in Asia, and, and there were some funding challenges and what have you. And so because those opportunities weren't there, then I chose to leave around 2012. And because of that bug that we planted in ourselves to go try something new in life, as in to go live in another on another continent, then we wanted to still do it. So I left Engine. Sue went for a sabbatical and, and unfortunately they, they chose not to do that. So it rather surprised them by resigning from senior role after many years service in a corporate. And we stood on the 27th of December. We'd rented our house out. We'd put everything into storage, sold the cars, and we stood with two suitcases and got in a cab to Heathrow. And then travel, we came back a few times for a couple of significant events and stayed at mates' houses. But other than that, we were on the road for 18 months. So I think it was because we'd set ourselves this vision of a life change relocation thing coming up in a few years. And when it didn't come through the work route, we made it happen through, through a personal route. Wow, that is quite a journey. And had you always intended it to be 18 months? What was the in initial intent? Or did you have an intention to start? It was a year because we'd rented our house out for that long. So that was kind of the initial, you know, and, and it was only worth doing in our minds for all the shag and hassle of, of um, emptying the house and letting it and, and all of that stuff, if it was going to be for that sort of period, or else it was just a long holiday. And it wasn't for us. We, you know, um, it's, it's a whole other topic, but we, we stayed in hotels as little as possible. We rented flats or houses or apartments and we learned the language in South America where we were for six months. We were in Spanish classes and things. I did an internship in a media startup and, and photocopied stuff for a month in Lima. And there's all sorts of things that, so we did some tourism and, and some of that, but it was always more than a holiday. It was always going to be a, a more of a travel adventure than, than that. Well, then you, you sort of teed it up there and I, I'm intrigued. What were those, you, you gave some that were almost, what were the principles you went into this with? Because I do think that's quite an interesting point for anyone thinking you're doing similar. What you know, when the two of you are like, we're going to do this, could you just elaborate on some of those principles? You almost set yourself the rules of the game, if you like. Yeah, the, the rules were that we didn't, we wanted to live as close to being locals as possible. And we know that's, you know, we weren't, we're not naive to the fact that we were, you know, relative, in most of the countries we went to, we were relatively wealthy Westerners versus the locals. So I'm not trying to pretend that we, you know, lived like, but we wanted to go to the local markets. We wanted to say rent apartments and houses rather than stay in hotels where possible. We wanted to experience the local culture. It wasn't a give back for us. You know, my sister's, um, my sister-in-law is currently in the Galapagos teaching English in, in a place where they don't get this kind of exposure to education. Now she's doing that, I would imagine, as a pay forward. And, and also, if you're going to do that, do it in a nice place. So why not mix the two together? Ours wasn't righteous. We didn't have that particular angle to it. So we weren't on a mission, you know, we weren't doing missionary stuff. But the principles were live as local as possible, like a local as possible, 
um, and live the normalish life. It wasn't all tourism and, and what have you. So we went to language class for four or five hours a day for six months and, and you know, learned the language so that we could do that as best we could. And did you say you were in Lima for six months? No, no Lima, we were in South America for six months. We were in Lima for two or three weeks and fell in love with it and met a guy whose son was doing a startup that was basically a competitor to an online uh, newspaper. To the Huffington Post. He was doing a South American version of the Huffington Post. And I happened to have done a project the year before all on paywalls for the Times and, and what have you. And who would pay for content and who wouldn't and how that would work. And, and our, pro- our project team had done that. And so I said to him, if I came back, because we had, uh, we always planned a month or two ahead. And I said, if I came back, would you lend me a desk and an internet connection in your office in return for half of my time? So he said, yeah, of course, that'd be great. So I went and did strategy and and planning and a bit of help for them half of the day. And the rest of the time, I had a couple of non-execs and some other project work I was doing. I used the desk and the office space. And I hung around 20 or 30 super bright, massively driven Peruvians who were on a mission to change the world by freeing up their media and doing this equivalent of of the Huffington Post. And that was a great experience because I had to get to work every morning and turn up at an office and and be a grown-up again. I I love it. And I mean, that's obviously one example. I can hear the passion in your voice. You know, what we've talked a bit about retrospect and hindsight. You know, what what impact now it's been a few years did that gap year have? You know, was it just a nice inverted commas holiday? Like, actually, yeah. How kind of what has that left you with? It's left us with a bug to travel more and more. You know, I've been fortunate to give up my board positions and, and start what I'm calling a career break in case my ego doesn't get too damaged if I decide I don't like it and I go back to work. Whereas if you retire, then I think that feels like it's permanent. So I'm calling it a career break this year. But just travel more and more, you know, is one of the things. And we've talked about whether we'll do another long trip or at the moment our strategy is to do shorter more often, but we might do another long trip. Um, I think it teaches you that the world is a much smaller place with a lot more similarities than differences. It was one of the things, if you talk about a philosophical thing that we took out of it, then it was that. And also that um, most national stereotypes are true. Um, <laughs> whether we like it or not, they are, in our experience. And, and was that from the other cultures you met or from their reaction to you as Brits? Oh, uh, probably both, actually. I'm sure we, I'm sure we fulfilled their need to uh, concrete the stereotype of us as well. <laughs> and... Obviously, it's had a huge impact on on you. You know, you, you you know the way you talk about it. I guess others listening to this might want to take that break. They might not be in the you know fortunate position you were that they'd sold a business. And I'm sure since doing this gap year and a half, I'm assuming countless people have asked you about it. Actually, what advice would you give to people who maybe are you know this is a podcast for consultants? Maybe they are on the road to partner. Maybe they are a partner. You know. Maybe they don't have kids. Maybe they do. I'd be interested the people who you have given advice to and kind of how you would tell people or advise people to approach if they're thinking, I'd love to do this, Simon, but. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's there's a book called Die With Zero, which um, is not a manual or or it's more of a philosophical thing. And and the guy's argument in there is to do things earlier in life rather than later because the memories pay dividends. So um, I think the example he uses is a ski trip. So if you're in, if you're 30 years old and you can afford to go on a ski trip that might cost you a couple of thousand pounds, should you do it or should you put that in the your pension or, or an ISA in the UK, he's an American author, but, and therefore when you're 40, that'll be worth 5,000 pounds or 10,000 pounds. And you can go on two ski trips. He would argue that you should go on the ski trip when you're 30. That's only 2000 pounds because you've then got 10 years of remembering and talking about how good that ski trip was. So the fact that memories pay dividends as well as the fact there's compound interest on, on investments. And I think that really 
would I would drive that home to people that of course you know if you've got commitments and children and all sorts of things but in terms of your career I think going early and having experiences whether that's a three-month gap or a 12-month or an 18-month gap is go do it because a you never know what's around the corner everyone can talk about YOLO and all of those things but actually it's because the experience you'll get will help you in the rest of life it'll help you in your career you know we we had all sorts of varying experiences of of success and failure and, and good, good fortune and misfortune that we learned from as individuals as much that would help you in crisis management in a consulting project as much as they would in you know in the next holiday you have in Magaluf or something so you know I think I would say try and go do it I can't imagine uh, you know, uh, we, I've had a fair number of people over the years and been involved in hiring people over the years. I can't imagine anybody looking at a CV nowadays and saying, oh, don't hire them. They're not serious. They took a year off in 2023 to go traveling or to go do something. You could go do something worthy or you could just go do something expansive and experience building. I can't imagine a world where you're going to get looked at negatively. I think you're going to have a great opening line for every interview you ever have. A great opening conversation. No, I think great advice. And, and to your point, the fact that you, you know, you've been an employer and have been in that position, I think gives even more authority to and confidence to people to go and do it. And I it was a subtlety that you you touched on with the example around the the news outlet, but you obviously still you did a gap, you know, inverted commas gap year, but you maintained certain elements of that professional life from enjoyment by the sounds of it. And and I think to your point around what's changed as well. Yes, you might not be able to do a 50-hour consulting week as a consultant traveling, but you can probably get involved in little initiatives or companies or, you know, advisory things. And actually, you could still keep some work aspects while doing all the travel, which still gives you great life experiences as well. Yeah, I was non-execing a media tech startup in, in the States at the time. And I, I went to Charlotte two or three times in the year before in 20. What, 2010, 2011, 2012, as part of that. And, and then when we went traveling, but the board meetings were done online even 11, 12 years ago because the board was split around the US and I was the only one in London. So they just shifted the time for them. And then actually I went to see them while I was traveling because I was traveling, whereas actually the rest of the board meetings had been online. So I kept some, you know, that was like three or four hours a month. I could always find time to be somewhere with an internet connection to keep my non-exec role up, for example. So yeah, so it can work. And like you say, it's... I don't think the 2010 was that long ago, but actually the way the world has moved on in terms of comms and you know, FaceTime and all of those things. Um, and I also, I, I love what you were just saying about that book, Die With Zero. I've heard about the book. I've, I've not read it, but as someone who is wrestling with whether I go skiing this year or, or not, <laughs> that is a great insight. I'm just curious, are there any other insights that, that stuck with you from that book or that had an impact? Because I think that, you know, that's got me thinking, so I'm sure it'll have got other people thinking too. Yeah, I think there's memory dividends. I think the other takeaway for me from the book is to break life into chunks or chapters or whatever, and you can do those on five or 10 year blocks and sort of do the things earlier that require you to do that require things like physical ability so he does talk about health and wealth and opportunity so again skiing is the obvious one i can't remember now the guy says wakeboarding which i, I guess is probably flying along behind a boat i'm not overly sure i think i think that I think, is, is, wakeboarding, that, is yes. that wakeboarding and so he says you know do all the wakeboarding in the first chapter or two of your life don't wait until you're 70 to do it because that you know and that's bleeding obvious and now that we're in this fortunate position we're doing some travel planning and we're doing all the travel in the beginning of our next stage that requires us to be able to get out of the way of bad people or run up hills or, or whatever and sitting on a train and going around europe or back to japan is on our list but it's probably something we can do in the middle third rather than the last you know the first third when we do something that's a bit more active and then in the third third we're probably sat in a 
corner dribbling somewhere if, if we're lucky. <laughs> but I, I think it's, it's such a powerful point. And, and it was a book, not quite as focused on that, but The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, which puts me obviously in a tribe and an age and people will make judgment. But yeah, he, he talks a similar point. He talks about those mini retirements of take a few months here, a few months there. You know, we, we talked about, I'm just off on a, a trip myself and, you know, I wouldn't quite call it a mini retirement, but it's a, it's a longer trip. And I think you're right. You know, the, the old adage of wait till you're 65 or, I mean, now for my generation, probably 75 before you retire. You actually, by that point, there's a lot of these things that you just physically can't do. You know, you can't go and climb up a mountain or other things. And I, I do like that point of don't do the easy travel while you're younger do that later on japan's good at any point it's worth from the last world cup i'd highly recommend that but that's uh, that's another point but no I, I think that's a great great piece of advice and like you say they just do it as well i think look at the upside and you know the, there's very few downsides you mentioned you don't have kids have you talked to anyone who imagine there's communities of people like you have you talked to anyone who's done it with kids has kids yeah i've talked to a mixture of people i've talked to some people who've then as you know homeschooled while while they've been on the i mean we all know there's people who live in vans permanently and, and go off grid and you know we weren't at all anything like that kind of you know extreme and good good luck to them you know so you know i've talked to people who've done it with kids i'm not absolutely i'm absolutely not the right person to take it the advice on children and schooling i wouldn't even pretend to consult on that and i've consulted on some things i know not a lot about so you know yes i have talked to people i, c I can imagine it's much harder when you've got responsibility and accountability for somebody else's progression because if it's you taking a career hit then sure maybe you'll drop back a grade i don't think you will by the way but your worst case scenario is that you imagine dropping back a grade or taking an extra few years to get promotion or, or something when you're then doing that to somebody else who's seven nine 11 years old. It, I can only imagine the responsibility feels much greater. However, there's a bit of me that says when they're 21 and they've got their degree or, or, or they've been doing an apprenticeship for three or four years, they're probably going to look back on that year you spent on the road together, do it with so much fondness and experience that actually the fact that they didn't learn some of the grammatical phrases in French probably isn't going to impact their life that much. But hey, um, as I said, I'm not an educator, so I wouldn't know. No, well, and um, my my son is is not school age yet, but I, I I try as best I can to remember when I was at primary school, which is a long old time ago. And you, you do think there's definitely some stuff you need to learn, but do I need to know who the Tudors were and what? I since school have I used much of my knowledge of Henry VIII? You know, can I, can I tell you the names of his wives? No, has that disadvantaged me in any way? Probably also no. So no, I think it's a really good point and. Yeah, maybe I'll ask you after this who you'd recommend and if they're in a consultant, I can get them on the show as well. <laughs> I haven't quite started a travel podcast yet. So Simon, this has been great fun. Obviously, we had a, a lovely long lunch ahead of this. So I thoroughly enjoyed our day together. I have just two questions and I think you may have almost answered one of them already, but I, I will ask it anyway in case there are more. So the first question is about books and it's what book or books have either had the most impact on you or, or have you gifted to others most and, and why was that? Yeah, so um, obviously I've listened to the podcast quite a few times and it made me think about this question. I've stopped gifting books, by the way. I just It, it made me conscious that I've stopped gifting books. I don't know whether the Kindle revolution has done that or something else. I now tend to email people a link to a blog or something and not a book anyway. So that was a note to myself. I wonder if so the book I've gifted the most is a book called Who Moved My Cheese? 
I don't know if that's been mentioned before. I don't remember it coming up. It has once. Okay. And okay. I, I am a big fan of that book, but please, it was a long time ago it came up. So, so when we first started doing change management projects for, you know, say large corporates, we would give out tons of these books to people because as most people may or may not know, it's a little fable about two mice who pop out of the skirting board every morning and, and there's cheese there and they have the lovely cheese and then they go back into the thing. And then one morning they pop out and there's no cheese there. And it's how one of the mice reacts in a positive way and goes off to find more cheese and the other one just sits there being pissed off that there's no cheese. And maybe summarizing it rather brutally. And it's actually become a phrase in our house. So we now use the phrase and you'll walk and somebody will, you know, I don't know, I'll come home and my, my wife might have moved the dressing table in the bedroom and I'll say, somebody's moved my cheese, so my deodorant's no longer in the same place. And it's just become this by phrase for you've disturbed my world slightly and I now have to deal with the fact that you've disturbed my world. And the reason that we gifted it to people was that because, you know, it's about how we deal with change and leaning into it and accepting it and all that. And so the phrase is still means a lot to me in terms of there's two ways of dealing with change is inevitable there's two ways of dealing with it you can either you know lean into it and get over it or you can be messed about by it and i try and do the the former not the latter i'm not sure i'm always successful but yeah no as i say it's a great recommendation it's i'm surprised it hasn't come up more because like you say it's it's a great fable it's also very short so even for now with micro scrolling needs it kind of takes an hour to read or something exactly and i think you know for the tiktok generation you've just summed it up in 20 seconds (laughs) so that can be a snippet that you can put on your tiktok And then obviously, I guess we did touch on, I won't ask for any more, but we did touch on Die With Zero as well. So I think people have that. I'll put links to both in the show notes as well, just so people can find them. And then the very last question, I usually ask this for three people, but just because of your journey, you're going to get kind of three and a half or four. So the question is, you've got these people in front of you and and you can give a piece of advice to each. One of them's just at the start of their consulting career, analyst, as I know them, graduate. One of them, four to five years in, kind of, they're senior enough that they know a bit, they've got some options, but they're not the senior end of the spectrum. And then that final one, and this is where the three and a half or four comes in, is I usually ask this as someone approaching partner. Given your journey, I'm also going to ask it as someone who might be thinking of going to launch their own business. What one piece of advice would you give to each of them? So I think the the new graduate analyst one is put your hand up for everything and go do everything. Be the person who volunteers for everything. And work, that's going to mean working hard and there's some sacrifice and compromise to be made there. I, th- I think that's probably appropriate. Barack Obama has a short video clip doing the rounds at the moment promoting his uh, Netflix series, which is get a reputation for getting things done. Again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But just be the person who puts their hand up for everything and goes and does what they say they're going to do by the time they say they're going to do it. So be reliable, enthusiastic and volunteer for everything would be my advice to your starter. I managed to put three things into a single answer there, but I spoke quickly so that hopefully that counts. For the four to five years in, I think by then it should be networking. And I, you know, my view of network, building your network is about paying it forward. If your view of networking is gathering business cards or LinkedIn connections and only asking for stuff when, you know, when you need something, then that's not going to pay you back later in life, but pay it forward take people useful things, send them stuff when you don't want something, keep in touch with people when you have nothing to gain from it, build a little bit of a personal brand for something. I think I got known as being the Oracle on London restaurants before there was Harper's or, or well, not obviously before Michelin, but, and literally I would get emails from clients and friends saying, 
date night, budgets this, anywhere that's just opened recently, or group meal, 10 of us, need a private diner, because I just spent most of my time um, eating out in London. So that was my, my networking brand thing was that Simon will know somewhere that meets your, your budget and your requirement. Well, all right, I'd like it to have been something slightly more professional. I probably knew a tiny bit about multi-channel retail for a while, but network and pay it forward. Don't just be the person who gathers contacts and then rings them when they need something or pings them. And the approaching partner or starting your own business piece, I would say, you know, and we there's been a lot of discussions on your podcast over the years about small firm versus big firm, doing your own thing versus working for one. I wouldn't go there now. I think what I would say to somebody is, you know, if you don't enjoy selling, then you probably don't want to start your own business unless you've buddied up with somebody. So I think there's a huge difference between somebody who tolerates the commercial side of consulting and somebody who's passionate and, and, and relishes it. If you're not the person who's passionate and relishes it, make sure you're buddying up with one or two people who are or don't start your own business because that you're going to spend a disproportionate amount of your time that you cannot imagine how much of your time you're going to spend selling when you start a business and therefore be super clear about it. And if you are, then great, go do it. If you're not, then carry on through partner in, in doing your craft because you can be amazing at the craft and super valuable, but it's a different desire and passion to, to getting up in the morning and wanting to sell consulting services. I think Simon, some great advice there, a really nice place for us to end. The last question then that is one that is very much just if someone wants to get in touch you, know, you mentioned you're on a career break. You have nothing to sell. You know, as you said, networking <laughs> is about getting known for, I don't know if you still want people to come to you for restaurant recommendations, but if people have enjoyed this, they want to find out more about you, You know, if you're happy to take people's sort of messages, where would you point them to? Where can they find you? Well, if they Google Simon Clark, then they'll, they'll come up with a horror fiction writer who's far better known than I am. And then I was coming up sort of second or third in the Google rankings until the virologist at Reading University overtook me during COVID because he saw Simon Clark. There's a Tour de France rider called Simon Clark. He's obviously a better cyclist than me. So I would go to simonclark.com, which is where I have a simple one-page intro. And of course, you can link to me on LinkedIn. And I'm really happy to hear from anybody who wants to talk about stuff. Although I'm on a career break, I still do a little bit of mentoring and keeping in touch with people and I, and I really enjoy doing that. So I'm very happy to, to have anyone reach out. Fantastic. So well, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. I also I commend you on that build-up, having talked about all these Simon Clarks who have certain notable successes. You have the last laugh. You own the domain name. They will never... <laughs> no one wants to go to Simon Clark Cycling, simonclarkcyclist.com or simonclarkvirologist.com, do they? You own the domain. So well done there. Simon, this has been great. Thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you, Nick. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.